everybody. Welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. My name is Brian Sobolewski, and this is the season ending, episode 24, Altered Boy. And what we're going to do today is talk about what I am. What, what, what was the result? How have I been altered? And in what ways do I think I have been altered by everything that you've heard up to now? So we're going to do that through a series of stories like I usually like to do. You know me, I like to prattle. And um, we're going to do it with specific stories centered around my mom because, um, you know, she's literally the only person in my family that uh, I connected to. And that I felt if she wasn't around and, and she was very close to death at one point, my mother's, uh, what turned my mother around sobriety wise in terms of drinking herself to death and nobody could figure it out. You know, she had been in multiple hospitals, seen multiple doctors, you know, went to AA, did everything everybody told her to do, but she couldn't stop drinking. And the one thing that got her to stop was uh, a doctor that said, listen, the next drink may kill you because uh, she had worn down the lining of her esophagus through, you know, daily drinking so much to the point that a hiccup could rupture it. And there's no way to fix that. You go into an ER and you're bleeding in the esophagus. I don't think they can fix that. So that, and she was like, oh shit, that sounds like that would suck. And she stopped. Um... But it was, it was very difficult for her. And mom had her struggles. And, but she was always there. She, and we had that kind of family. You know, those dysfunctional families that, you know, they're always by your side because, you know, they're always um, supportive whenever somebody else fucks with you. Um, but it... it it's tough to describe this woman without giving you specific examples. And I call this episode Altered Boy. And I'm going to set the stage because, I'm sorry, there's no way in hell I can explain to you the journey, if you want to call it that, of me getting from um, what I left prison as and what you hear right now. That has been the longest trip. Um, and there has been multiple dissections of, of my life. I have always believed in therapy. I always went to therapists. In season three, we're going to talk in depth about this particular type of therapy that's no longer around anymore. I'm going to actually have to... I, I got to take out my old computer and see if I can fire it up because I had a ton of notes... I had a ton of notes about uh, the type of therapy, but I did a Google search for determinism. And that's a, a, a topic or something in, in philosophy. Um, but this type of therapy was, it saved my life, man. It saved my life because it, it, it helped me sort out and, com and compartmentalize how I was feeling. It, it, help me listen to that tape in my head. You know, everyone's got, you know, a committee. I call it a committee. 
and this is the basis for um, family systems therapy. Family systems therapy isn't about sitting with your family. It's about understanding the family in your head, if you want to put it that way. Now, now, I mean, we go off on a psychological tangent here, but it is more of an acknowledgement that there are multiple sides of you and those multiple sides sit at a table and at one point, depending on how strong certain sides are, maybe you're neurotic and you're OCD, well, that, that part of you never leaves the head of the table. And, you know, my therapist used to say driving the car. So, so you know, you're, you're in a minibus full of your family, your head. And who's at the driver's seat? You know, I have a side of me that loves to get in the driver's seat and start tearing up lawns and shooting out windows and toilet paper. Like, and to the extent that he gets in the driver's seat, I, I screw my life up. So it's, it's an acknowledgement of those different sides of, of myself and yourself. And, and I don't want this podcast to turn into a self-help podcast, but at the same time, I would find it hard pressed for you not to, to learn something about yourself as we go through my therapy in season three. But we're going to talk about altered boy. I was altered before. It's so funny because I I think of my life in chunks and pre-prison and pre-robberies. I was broken already. And you're going to, you're going to be able to tell the end. If you haven't been able to tell that up to that point, I haven't done my job. Um, but I have other stories. It's so funny. I sit down to do these podcasts and I'm like, oh, what am I going to talk about this week? And five more stories from my life that are pertinent will pop up in my head. And, and then I sort of mold it into a subject matter. So my mother was the only one that I could relate to. She was the only one that um, hit me the least. Although when she did, it was much more damaging. But at the same time, Mom was very soft and very loving when she wanted to be or when she could be. Because like I said, she had her own struggles. And when I was a kid, my mom decided that she was going to send the three of us to Greek Orthodox camp. Now, no one's Greek. No one's Orthodox. We were Polish. uh, That side. Uh, there was no acknowledgement of the Russian side of our family by my by Bubchi. You know what I mean? They, because they did not get along. So again, it's just a weird match that that ever happened. But my mother saw an opportunity to dump our asses off. So across the street from us were the Velukases. So there's your Greek connection, and they had a house. Uh, it was kind of across the street to the left. If you were standing in the front of Short Ave. 12 Short Ave, which is where I grew up. Google map that shit. That house is still up. If the pool's in the back, I put that pool in. But you can get, get a good idea of the backyard. It was the only backyard in the neighborhood that was all rocks. Just like you couldn't blast through it if you wanted to. And structurally, you'd probably take down half of this little hill. But uh, And there were little holes you could from where they did do blasting. And that's what we called the entrance to the woods behind my house. The Velukases lived two houses away from that or a house. I think that the right next to the Ennises. So yeah, one house away from that. And so they were at a dead end street across from the Velukases, the very end of Short Ave. Um, 
before you walk into woods. I forget their last name. Christensen, I want to say. But for the first couple of years of my life and my uh, consciousness of you know where I was in the world, I thought that guy was God. Not that I put him on the pedestal. I actually thought God lived at the end of my street. That's what I called him. I'm like, are you God? Like, I don't know. Every, uh, when I personified God in my head, uh, that's what he looked like. So that's what I called him. So I was a weird kid, you could tell. But the Veloucuses had an older son. And Kev and Arthur got along very well. And then Elaine and my sister were about the same age. And they would hang out. Guess who didn't hang out with either one of them? Me. So, I mean, we used to go over in the... Elaine Velucas. What was the mother's name? I forget the mother's name, but um, the father ran Reds in in downtown Salem. I think it's still there. Um, and it was a great, it's a great little place to get breakfast uh, if you want like a nice diner meal. But um, she used to cut hair. The mother used to cut all of our hair at one point. We used to go over there. She got a little chair in in her basement. And she used to do stuff at home while I imagine raising two kids and they were they, they were raised pretty strict Gre- Greek Orthodox they, these are God-fearing and the dad was a super hard worker and expected his kids to be super hard workers and today uh, that you know Arthur and Elaine are still very very uh hard-working people they always have been always will be super straight-laced cool cool salt of the earth uh <laughs> then they have the Sobolewskis <laughs> So how the fuck we got wrapped up into going to a Greek Orthodox camp, I don't know. Other than the connection of, hey, Jess and Elena friends, Arthur and Kever friends, hey, let's throw Brian to the mix. Okay? And I was fine with all of it. I got to tell you, I, I was not a kid. I had no friends. I got beat up all the time. I was, I had it. I had had it with even trying. So before it ever struck me that I was being cast out into the woods of Maine, I think, I think that's where it was, um, that, that, you know, we were being, we were going to be castaways and living in the fucking woods. What I loved was pre-camp, mom took us to Caldo, we bought clothes, we bought food and snacks and any time that my mother paid that kind of attention to us, it was a happy time. But I just didn't see it until I stepped on that bus. Now, I can tell you, I was I was lulled into this false sense of sugar security because we had, I had, and I remember very specifically, sour cream and onion Doritos. And they don't have them anymore. They, they became ranch. But sour cream and onion Doritos were amazing. They were amazing. And I had like two bags full. And all the candy I could, you know, possibly ever hope to have. It was like having uh, Halloween. My suitcases were full of Snickers more than they were any clothes. But on that bus, I sat down. And they separated us on the bus. Like my brother went with the older kids and... You know, I was always kind of stuck in the middle. Just had an immediate acceptance with Elaine and I'm just sitting there. I don't know anybody. I'm sitting next to this kid. I'm looking out the window. All the parents are ready to wave goodbye and I lose my shit. Tears start fucking pouring down my face as I have a full-blown panic attack. 
full blown. So I cover my face with my hands and I sob. And the kid next to me is like, what the f- <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? That poor kid must have been like, where are we going? Like, is this prison camp? And I was devastated. So with every mile that we drove away from the house, the the like the abandonment, like how dare you? How dare you throw me on a bus with no one I know and send me away for a week in Maine? Well, you're going <laughs> you're going to learn today. <laughs> Little Kevin Hart, but um once we touched down, once we got to this fucking camp in Maine, we're all sectioned into age groups. So again, I'm getting further away from anybody I know. So I am a complete stranger. I'm awkward around around other kids. Um, I don't get naked in front of other kids. I never have, never will. Sorry, ain't going to happen. Ain't playing sports today because you need me to change. Not going to happen. Hey, we went out in the football field. And let me, I had a little bit of talent. I'm a little kid, man. You know, I, I, I would, uh, they put me at wide receiver, which is what you did with every pipsqueak back then. You just say, go out for a pass. It was my first day of uh, gym. And, you know, I had gotten no sport acclaim up to that point. And, they, and the kid, this monster kid, Freddie, said, hey, go out for a pass. And I went out and he passed it and I caught it. And I scored a touchdown. And so I think if I were, you know, not beaten to a pulp by my brother every day and, and somehow you uh, actually embraced that, I, I don't know. I'm not saying I would have been Jerry White Rice, but, um, you know, I, I was okay. It was just a whole other part of that whole male bullshit part of, of that life never appealed to me. So we get to camp, um, I unpack everything and I'm, I'm sitting on my bunk and I'm just, my eyes are all puffy from crying my eyes out. And I say, fuck this, I'm not doing this. So I grab a couple of candy bars, throw them in my pocket and I start walking out in the woods. I walk past, the, you know, there were a bunch of cabins, there were probably 15 cabins, there was a, a built-in pool, they had tennis courts, they had an archery, they had canoeing. This was a, Pretty awesome camp. <laughs> Not for me. Nope. So I walked out into the middle of the woods and I said, this is it. I am going to die. Now, I was not in any way, shape, or form uh, capable of killing myself at that point. I was too afraid. Always have been, always will. I've been suicidal multiple times in my life, but I was like, you know, the whole idea of, of killing myself. Uh, no, it sounds messy it's I'm too I'm too much of a pussy. Sorry if that's offensive to anybody, because that word has fallen out of favor, and I love it. I wish it would come back, but I was. I, I've always been afraid. I didn't grow up in a place that said that fostered uh, bravery. Run away was was it was and is my first mode of travel in any situation. Just run the fuck away. You don't have to be stronger. You don't have to be a better fighter. You just have to be a better runner. And I walked out into these woods. It was more about, I'm going to cause harm to myself so that it will harm you. How dare you send me to camp? How fucking dare you? Do you know me? Have we met? It was, it was all of that. It was all that in my poor little brain at 
10, 10 or 11 maybe. I was, I was young, but you know, but I should have known better. Now, I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking. I'm like, listen, I can't kill myself, but if something's going to cut, I was, my plan was to starve myself. Like, I'm just going to hang out in the woods until I am dead. <laughs> that, so it wasn't, su it wasn't suicide. It was death by starvation or if some animal came and ate me. And, you know, won't my mother be pissed? Ha! Oh, poor Bry. If we just listened to him, let him eat his Doritos at home alone in his room, that's all I would have done anyway. You wouldn't even noticed I was there. It took me about uh, 35 seconds, but <laughs> and three Snickers later before I was like, I can't, this is dumb. You know, the, the worst part about the whole thing was I sat out there and not a single person knew I was gone. You know, how could they? I was a strange kid in the camp, but you know, my brother or sister certainly don't give a fuck. They were swimming and laughing. They had fun at this camp. But I marched out of those woods fully intent on getting home. So I marched right to the camp office and I was like, guys, love it. Love what you've done here, but I'd like to go home now. And I was there maybe a half hour. So they let me call home and I, I knew I knew it was a futile attempt. My mom was like, yeah, hey, uh, I'll come get you. But you're not going to like the week with me after having come to having to come get you. Like she was going to like she would have just called Bupchi in and it would have I would have DIY the whole house. <laughs> Remodeling on Bry. Like that. So, so this was a vacation for my mother as if she needed it. You know what I mean? After everything you've heard up to this point. My mom was not a hard parent, working parent. So she's like, no way, I'm not coming up there. So I decided I was going to go on a rampage. A rampage. And my brother was always causing trouble. So all I had to do was go and hang out with him. And that's what I started doing. I started spending an inordinate, inordinate amount of time in the older kid's cabin because... I don't know. It was better. It was always better. I hated kids my age. and But eventually the camp counselors were like, what the, what the fuck is going on here? No, you can't be in here. Go. go. Go with the other kids. And they, multiple times this camp went out of its way to try to engage me and met with, you know, stony silence. No, sorry. I ain't doing, what? Fun? No. Uh-uh. Swimming? I love it, but only in Peabody. I'll only do it at home. I'm sorry. I have a note from my doctor. Like that kind of shit. Like that, and I made it the week, and I went home, and yada yada yada. But, but the separation anxiety that I had when you tried to tear me away from the one person in my life that I counted on was very telling. It was very telling, and probably one of the reasons why my mother stuck me in therapy so much. She was trying to stick all of us in therapy, but mom, uh, but Jess and Kev. Nope. To this day, you couldn't sit Kevin in front of a therapist. Even if he wanted it, he has built such a defense that it now, at this point, it almost seems default. Like, he, he can't even control it. Like a computer gone haywire. Um, Jess, you know, Jess will do it, but um, I don't know. I have always done it because I could sit in front of an adult 
and ask the questions about why my life was so fucked up and get answers. And it's part of the reason what that led me into the field of psychology. So, the next story that I'm going to talk about is Brian Kelly. And Brian Kelly was a therapist in Salem Hospital. And uh, my mom took me there every Wednesday night. And I toyed with this man. I toyed with this man because I, I just wanted to know what it's, what did it, what it sounded like when an adult was straight with you. When an adult didn't have to cover up their own sins and could have an open discussion with me. So I, I presented this guy with multiple scenarios. I made up a girlfriend. Because part of it is I certainly wasn't going to go in there and talk about what was really going on in my life. And, and I don't know, you know, how much of it my mother preempted. Like, if the guy was like, well, why is your, you know, 11-year-old son coming to see me? I was in seventh grade. So, I don't know how old you are in seventh grade. That, that's when I, when I was at. And the fake girlfriend started with uh, my buddy, my best friend in seventh grade. I don't know. I made up a girlfriend because he was interested. He was interested in hearing about it. It made me feel, I don't know, it made me feel like a regular person. So then I took this lie, this fake, imaginary Canadian beauty model. She was a swimwear model. She worked for Hawaiian Tropic. I don't know. You might have seen her on an episode of some show that was never ever on. <laughs> but that's pretty much it. And I took her to therapy. And I sat down in therapy and said, oh, I have a girlfriend. And, and he would try to coax me into talking about some things, you know, and, you know, how do you feel about females? And how do you feel about this? And how do you feel about that? But you can't know those things. I will not discuss those things. Those things are outside of my house. I was always told not to discuss anything with anybody. So I went in there with fake shit. And the, the other thing that I walked in there with that I didn't... I know I was never serious. But I felt it. And I went in there and told him I wanted to kill myself. And he was very concerned, of course. And uh, But at the time, there was nothing he could do outside that therapy session. Like, you know, now we have laws in place. This was the 80s. So it, now we have laws in place that say if you're going to harm somebody else or others, you know, I got to report it. To my knowledge, he didn't report it. And I'm pretty sure he didn't because my mother would have been like, you know, fucking kill you. I'll kill you first. I'll kill you first. You don't like your life enough. That That's the response I would have got from my mother. Like, yeah, you want to kill yourself? Um, but I wanted, I wanted him to care. I wanted him to give a fuck. And I felt like the only way I could get somebody to do that was to threaten great harm to myself. And see, it was a test. I had no interest in it, but it was interesting because it helped me explore or at least start to get in touch with some of the, you know, depression that I was, that I was feeling. Obviously, I was a pretty depressed kid. So I didn't see him much longer. You know, eventually it just kind of fizzled out because again, I'm 13. After session three, what, what do I have to talk about? Homework? So I, I remember one session I asked him to read back 
some of the notes that he wrote about me after every session. I'm like, well, where do these notes go? I bet you they're somewhere still in Salem Hospital. But he read the notes back to me. And it was it, it sounded like somebody else's life because a lot of the shit that he read back to me was true. None of it. You know, you could argue the suicide part was, but I'm telling you deep down in my heart, there's no way I could have done it. It was attention-seeking, 100%. So back in my day, it was this. Are you suicidal? Yes. Now, oh my God, you're on suicide watch. We're going to tie you to a bed. And, ah, it's just, oh my God, it's crazy. The response that you get. In my day, it was, are you suicidal? Yes. Okay. If you were going to do it, what do you have a plan? No. Get the fuck out of here then. Come back when you have a plan because then we know you're serious. That's literally how we did it. When I used to answer, <laughs> I used to answer intake calls at Brookside Hospital. They'd stick me on the 24-hour phone thing and answer you. People be like, okay, come to rehab. I'm wasting. My life sucks. And that was, a, are you suicidal? Yeah, I would kill myself. Do you have a plan? Um, I was going to make some eggs and then... <laughs> no, do you have a plan to kill yourself? Oh, no, I don't have a plan. Then get to, Call me back when you do. It's just hilarious. Like, we'd be like, just stop wasting my time. You can't do that now, I'm sure. But uh, I don't know how many people... Guy probably ate eggs and killed himself. <laughs> Altered boy is named such that um, I named it after my mom asked me if she asked me to do something I did it I, I I loved her she was the apple of my eye like watching her get ready um, she was funny she was very charismatic she was smart. She read and she, I think she, I think we were a lot alike in that school didn't interest her because they didn't teach her what she really wanted to know. And part of me going to these therapists and sit in front of these therapists was because I was asking them to teach me the things that I wanted to know. And that's what I sought from adults at that point. My mother was smart and she she had a faith. We grew up Catholic. So we went to Catholic church. Bobch insisted on it. So Bobch was really like, hey, did you go to church Sunday? Why aren't you bringing the kids to church? Bobchi did a Saturday 5 o'clock mass up at uh, the shopping center. There was a church in there. And she used to go to that. She used to take a bus to it. We went to St. John's. And St. John's... Uh, huge Catholic church huge and we went every Sunday we went to midnight mass that two hour shit show escapade there was always a trumpet the fuck is a trumpet doing in church um, big pulpit that rose over the congregation I remember one time Cardinal Law got on and he it, <laughs> He certainly didn't sound like a priest. He sounded like a Harvard-trained accountant as he was asking for 15% of your gross, not net, or whichever one's the bigger one. He's like, remember, folks, it's the gross, not the net. <laughs> He'd send us your money. It was always freezing in there, even in the summer. And they had this program, this altar boy program. And my mother said, will you do it? 
I'm like, no, under no circumstances am I doing this. What are you out of your mind? But she begged. And I remember she begged. And, and I knew how proud she would. There weren't many things my mom could say or brag about. There were very few, if any. How sad is that? And part of that's your fault. You know what I mean? Part of that's her fault. Because of the way we were raised. But it just screamed dysfunction. And she wanted to be proud about this. You could tell. She wanted to sit in that church pew and beam with pride at her boy wrapped in a white tunic. You know, this was before we knew that all the priests were raping motherfuckers. Um, but I fought her on it a little bit, but then, you know, I saw an opportunity to make mom happy. So I enrolled. I enrolled into altar boy school. I dragged my buddy into it. So me and him both did it. And it's just, oh, the guy that trained us, Father John. There's this point in the mass where, um, he pours the water and the wine into the chalice and you're supposed to stand there and make sure that if a drop of it falls, you have this little thing that looks like a ping pong ball, but with an extended handle and it's made of gold. I don't know if it was real gold, but I wouldn't doubt if it was. Catholic Church had some cash. Remember, net, not gross or gross, not net. Um, that no part of what he was doing could ever touch the ground because it was holy. But during practice, we used to go through the whole process of he actually poured the wine and he would drink it during practice. So by the end of by the end of class, altar boy class, and there were girls there too, he was hammered. <laughs> He'd be like, son and I just stand over there. I just stand wasted. It was great. Well, now I think it's great, but back then it was like, Jesus, does any is anyone sober in this town? And I remember me and mom had a fight one time. She was dropping me off one Wednesday and I didn't want to go. And she was like, but it's just, I'm so proud of you. Just go. And I'm like, well, why? I'm not even sure I believe in God. And it was like punching her in the gut. She had her faith, but mom ended up leaving the Catholic Church. She And she always had the same issues that I had with it that everybody has with it. No offense to anybody that's a practicing Catholic here. But if you are, I doubt you're listening to this podcast. Um, she eventually, but it didn't shake her faith. Like, I don't, I believe in God, but I can't, I think to come up with any concept of him is to take away the power that we're supposedly ascribing to a being that created everything. I don't know if it's a being. I think it was a mathematical equation. I think something was set into motion by something and um, to see what would happen. The chaos of it all stares you right in the face. But um, none of I, I couldn't come up with any of that. It, you know, I'm 52 years old. This is, this is my concept of God at this point. And I've always had these issues that, that nobody could answer any of the questions that I had. I had legitimate questions. I really did. And, and anytime I tried to engage somebody, it was, hey, here's some doctrine. Shove it down your face and just have faith. 
And I just couldn't. You're not talking to a person that lays his pillow on his head at night, faith, faithful that everything's going to turn out. All right. Never have I had that. So as we talk about how all of this has altered me, you know, I was a very sick kid to begin with. I used to try to get sick. Now I've alluded to what being sick in my house was like when I told the story about me getting hit by a car, but I have never told this story. Dave Lassard used to live behind our house. So you could see the, that the Short Ave onto Glen Road was, you know, attractive housing. Some developer threw up a bunch of track houses. All of them look pretty much the same. Split levels with addicts. 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 With addicts, yeah. It sold to addicts. Um, and right behind our house was this big old, you could tell, it was a big old farmhouse. It was huge. Multi-level, big barns. You could tell tractors to go in there and you could see that this this area was sort of the end or like the valley of, of somebody that tried to grow something at one point. But Dave Lassard lived in there and he was a, we used to hang out. He was a good friend. They were, uh, they lived in Salem so they didn't go to the same school. Did Dave go to Welch? I don't remember Dave Lassard at Welch but he was a, he was a good kid and he cut himself once, cut himself on the wrist and it got infected and he got red vein. I, I don't know if that's what they call it, but this infection started to go up his arm and you could see the vein, the middle vein in his arm or artery, whatever that thing is. I should know that, um, was red and it was traveling. It was, had a trajectory for his heart. And if it reached his heart, Dave was done. And I visited him. Like, um, I went to his house and I went and I saw it. And I was like, wow, I want that. Literally what I thought. I want to have that. His family was around him. He was being fawned over. Every question, every wish he had the TV in his room. They had to haul the TV in his room so he could sit and watch it while he was sick. And he was eventually hospitalized for it because it's a big deal. And I wanted it. So, I didn't cut myself. I'll, I'll tell you that. But I did get a cut. I, I picked up this big metal thing I found in the woods. It looked like the door of something at one point, but it rusted out. And some of the rust had kind of made the metal split. And I threw it like a frisbee, and I still have the scar on my on my thumb. It's two little, like half moon scars where it, it dug into me, and it should have been stitched, but I wouldn't let my mother bring me to the hospital and stitch. And I had that cut when I saw Dave, and I saw Red Vein. So the next day, I went up into the woods. I took the bandage off. It was a fresh wound, and I started pouring dirt in it. I wanted it infected the intent, the deliberateness of my actions uh, were undeniable in that I wanted what Dave had. And I was willing to put my life in jeopardy to get it. I wanted her attention on me. And Kevin, mom put, if mom treated anyone different in that she gave extra attention to them, it was my sister because my mom thought she had that secret her whole life and, and this was a, 
you know, a broken home with uh, multiple dads and, you know, that kind of shit was so taboo back then that my mother decided to keep it secret. You know, do I agree with her decision? Not sure. But she did it. And um, I, I wanted her attention. And Kev got it because he was in the most trouble. Like, we, you know, serious. My brother stole a car twice when he was 16. Like, or 15. Like, so young that, that you know, you're just out of your mind. What do you fight? Twice he stole it. One night and then the next night. And that's how he got bagged. I think I told the story, but if I didn't, well, episode 25. So my mom was ne- wasn't available. And, and, you know, even when she was available, she wasn't available. She was in the throes of her addiction. I, I bring you Altered Boy to take you to Pondville, May 25th, 1999, when I walked out of prison. Happy time? Was, was it a happy time? No, it was anxious. Anxious, 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 anxious. It's like you have so much to do. Everyone knows that feeling of laying in bed. Like, oh my God, I got so much shit I got to do tomorrow. But imagine you're laying there and you're tied to the bed. You know, you can't leave. Like, you, regular people don't procrastinate and move that day. They prepare. They pack. They do a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, you can't do that in prison. First of all, there's nothing to pack. And second of all, I can't leave at my own, you know, volition. So mom is set to pick me up. I got to take all my stuff down to property. So property is going to pack it up and they're going to mail it to me. I can't walk out with it. Why? I don't know. But they had to mail it. The TV with no speaker, all my shit. They took it. And the night before I leave, I'm up in my cell and I got nothing. Partek left. He moved in with somebody else that he was hanging out with. And good, I hated that kid. So I had the last, the last night I had the cell to myself and I was in the bottom bunk and I didn't have a TV and it was miserable. There was no, no sleeping. And I'm like, what am I, I, gotta, I had to check in with probation as soon as I got out, like 24 hours after you get out, you have to check into probation. And I had three years of probation to do and three years of probation will tie in heavily to the storyline of next season. So, so much stuff on, on my head that I ended up waking up at midnight and asking the, the cop at the desk to grab my TV so I could at least watch it until the wee hours. And he did. I was getting out the next day. It was going to give me a hard time. Altered boy. Nothing. Nothing altered me more than... Walking out of prison that day. And my mom was there. My mom walked. You had to. At this point, if you're going to smoke, you had to be 300 feet away from any government building. So my mom got out of the car and she went to go smoke. So she was 100 feet away. And I got out and Jess was in the car waiting for us. And I walked over to my mother and I took her into my arms. And she was a skeleton. She was nothing. And and that changed me. Because uh, 
I don't know that cancer is so punctuated by multiple times of having to wrestle with the idea that this is the end. There's not a lot of hope left. But she was in the middle of this treatment that was tearing her apart. And it fucked me up. And that's where I'm ending season 23. Uh, episode 24. Sorry. See? You get really fucked up when I talk about this stuff. So, season three is going to be a, a very emotional season because uh, a lot of stuff... A lot of stuff happens. I end up having to go to war with probation. I have to draw the line with them. Almost get sent back to prison. And we're going to talk about a lot of, of therapy. Before I met Bob, there was a lot of therapists before that. So there's a, there's a lot to go over, guys. Season season two was very special to me. Like Casey said to me, you know, geez, I can't believe you got through a whole... Was prison so boring that it only took you a season to get through? A hundred percent, guys. A hundred percent. 99% of prison time, you are laying around just thinking. The same four walls looking at, the same five dudes you're looking at. You're in a you're in a pattern, but the boredom is what kills you. All those things about prison you hear about, getting raped and being stabbed and being harassed and beat up and all of that stuff is minuscule when you consider um, how much time you ended up having to just sit and think. And that's the torture. That's why anybody that didn't read in that place, you know, once you get a TV, you can mind, mindlessly watch TV, but there's only so much TV you can watch. But man, if you didn't read, it's hard. That's, that's hard time. Please don't make any mistake about it. But when they put you in a box and leave you there, no one gives a fuck. And all you do is sit in your shit and everybody else's shit. What do you think? That there's negative and positive energy? Oh, there's such a nice vibe in this prison today. She's like, ne never. Even the flowers are fucking pissed. Like, I'm, there's, there were flowers outside the visiting room uh, in Shirley. And I was like, these things, the second you put them into the ground, they were like, <laughs> I really don't want to be here. They could leave if they if they could. It just pulls the life out of you. Like the soul out of you. And thank God for it. Please don't think any part of season two I was sitting here looking for any sympathy from anybody I'm fully aware of and expect to be held accountable for all of my shit. But there's some fucked up shit going on out there, man. And then, you know, season three will, will be peppered in some bonus episodes about me talking about some particular cases because I watch a lot of true crime on um, on Netflix and Hulu and Scott Peterson is innocent. Um, uh, and we're going we're gonna to start picking apart some cases and you will get my perspective of what's really happening there if I can give it to you. And I usually can. And usually when I watch one of those shows, I'd be like, hold on, stay right here. That's, that's the issue. Or that that something else is going on there, or or so. Hope, hopefully, you guys are in for season three. Uh, update on the one man show. Boop. Got a, a deadline of December third before Act One is done. And Act One, it's shaping up. It, I've written a lot. I write every day. I pop some some stuff onto the computer, onto the notes, and you know, it's either a detailed description of of something I want to talk about, or I'll parenthesis a tell this story here. Um, 
The show's at Doghouse. Just, uh, I just had an amazing, amazing night last night. Casey Casperson was out. Uh, he's on holiday in Colorado with his family. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody uh, at Doghouse and Sick Puppies and to you guys out there. But, um, you know, he had me host the show last night. And, uh, my God, it was just it was one of those shows I think I'll, ever, I'll remember the rest of my life. You know, it, it started shake. It started out <laughs> damn shaky, but... Listen, I think the, the the thing comedy teaches me the most is not to ever take myself too seriously. I get on that stage because I want you to laugh and I can't do that if I'm in serious state. There's something about when I step on that stage that calms me where, where I don't know, I feel like the a train conductor. Like I'm going to take you on a ride and I'm hoping... You know, the ride is great, but if I get up there and I'm like, Hur. some comedians struggle with that, man. Some some comedians struggle with their energy on stage. And um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just blessed. I feel, and one, this is one of the only times you'll hear me say shit like this, but I'm, I just feel blessed to have found a little spot to, to get up regularly and, and iron out this stuff because uh, what I respect about improv is when you get a, a good group of people together, they just do amazing things. They really just do amazing things. And very, 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 very talented comedy comes from that. And it's uh, it's just cool to be a part of. So the one man show, I'm going to take a little break from the podcast, uh, put some stuff together so there will not be one next week. I'm so sorry. I have not taken a break since I started this full steam ahead. Back in February, I think so. And again, this podcast hasn't been out that long. Uh, take a little bit of a break. So go back and listen to some old episodes. Uh, I may go back and re-record some of the episodes in season one because I was so fresh at, at this um, and so new at the beginning that I don't regret anything that's out there. But I may go back and retell it. And, and you know, every time I tell it, 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 it gets a little tighter. In terms of, hey, you know, it gets more staccato. It gets more A plus B equals C than all over the place like last episode was. I know a lot of you said that episode 23, I was all over the place. And I apologize for that, but I, I think I explained why. You know, talking about my mom and talking about cancer, just... Whew, it's like my brain is immediately saying, hey, I know you're on that topic, but hey, why don't you just talk, start talking about dogs? Aren't they great? And I will. And then I'll come back to it, but... Hopefully this was a little bit clearer for you guys to understand my brain. Can't wait to bring you season three because I think it will probably uh, at least be as good as season one and two. Or that is my hope. And uh, maybe by then I will have some recordings of some one-man show stuff for you. So stay tuned, guys. Thank you so much for listening and um, have a good one.